Wow. Is that the only time you've ever been mistaken for a sheep? Uh, no, I've had some pretty bad haircuts. <laughs> You're listening to The Lip. And this is a story about a woman who made a truly astonishing sacrifice for a friend. It's also about a boy who was mistaken for a sheep. Yep, you heard right, a sheep. And a good witch who saved his life. You heard that one right too, yep. It all might sound a bit crazy, but I promise you, it will all make perfect sense in the end. I met a child. She was a witch in disguise She floats in the bay In a tiny birch basket So the guy at the beginning of this episode is Michael Batista. Just a quick apology here. Michael's interview was recorded at his home and unfortunately for us, the neighbours decided to play some loud music just after we sat down. So in case you're wondering, that's what you can hear in the background in some parts of this interview. For Michael's story, we have to start back in 1989. He was 10 years old. His family had been all but wiped out on the stock market crash a couple of years earlier. Their business had folded and they'd had to start all over again from scratch. That July, the Batistas were moving from Auckland to Napier for a brand new life. As the eldest kid, Michael was given the honour of riding in the huge removal truck with his granddad for the long drive down country. It was a very loving relationship. Granddad was, you know always affectionate towards us kids um, and he was always around the family doing DIY for us helping mum and dad fix their house up and everything. He was deaf in, in the left ear from when he was younger he went away to war and he wasn't listening to instructions and he was standing by one of the guns when they were shooting and it sort of burst his eardrum. Before they set off, his granddad had given Michael some instructions for the trip. Don't lean against the door, don't um, don't bring your blankets, <laughs> you know, things like that. But I was just like, no, no, I'm doing what I want. <laughs> it was a rental truck, it was quite a big one. I remember having to sort of, you know, lift myself up from the tyre and everything to get in. We left in the evening, so it was a night drive. Um, I remember, you know, as we're driving past other trucks, my grandfather would flick the indicator on you, the sort of hello the truck drivers do to each other, and so we were doing that all along, and, and that was quite exciting for me, you know, driving along in the night in the big motorway, and I think the road was a little bit wet, because, you know, I remember the lights reflecting off the ground as well. It was a very new experience for me. Mum and Dad and my sisters were following behind in the family car, but they were two hours behind. And that advice that his granddad had given him, it was pretty much ignored. I had like, you know, the duvet off my bed. And I think that in the end was the downfall, was because that was what got caught in the door and caused it to not close properly. The door swung open. Michael, who was leaning against the door, fell out. His granddad, who was deaf in the ear closest to Michael, didn't hear the door fly open. He had no idea his grandson had fallen from the truck, didn't even hear the door slam shut again. He just kept driving on into the night. He didn't notice until a little bit down the road when he stopped to sort of check on petrol, get some snacks and everything, and he sort of turned around and was like, oh, 
where is he? And sort of looked around the petrol station because he thought I would have run to look at lollies or go to the toilet. Didn't find me there and that's when he panicked. I don't remember falling out of the truck. I remember lying on the ground thinking, you know, sort of looking up and down the road thinking, you know, I'm in the middle of the road. Um, maybe I should get off. And for some reason I was unable to stand up. And I remember just thinking, oh, well, I'll just roll myself off the road and that's what I'd done. Not long after that is when the car turned up. It was young guys. Something lying in the gutter had caught their eye. It looked like a farm animal had escaped from a nearby paddock and had been hit by a car, although it also looked like it was dressed in human clothing. It was weird. They decided to investigate. I heard them say that, it, you know, it's not a sheep, you know, someone's not dressed a sheep up, <laughs> and it's a, it's a child. They pretty much bundled me up in the car and were like, you're right, you're right. And I remember it not being a very long drive, I just remember going down a straight and then turning a couple of corners and we were there. And they sort of carried me in and a police officer was asking me questions and it was quite weird being a 10 year old and I answered questions like the number plate of my parents car and phone numbers and stuff that I can't even remember now <laughs> you know but I gave all the information so that they were able to act on everything pretty quickly and by the time my parents actually made it to Napier you know there was officers waiting there to tell them that there was a problem and pretty much mum head straight back up it was obvious from his injuries that the back wheels of the six-ton truck had run over Mike's left leg, crushing it. He was flown from the small medical clinic in Tokoroa to Waikato Hospital, and at first they tried to save his leg, but the main artery was beyond repair. There was nothing they could do, and it was all pretty much take the leg off or lose me, so mum was like, take the leg off. I was in an induced coma for a few weeks. I woke up in ICU, I guess. And at that point, I had not been told that my leg was missing. The family decided not to break the news to him for a while. I think at some point, you know, that they got sort of like, well, we can't pretend it's there anymore because there were a few incidents where I was like, oh, I'm itchy and I can't reach my foot. And they'd be like, is, is this okay? And I'd be like, no, that's not really doing anything. And, and then they were pretty much, well, sorry, your leg is gone. It was a lot of disbelief, you know, sort of, oh, you must be joking with me. It didn't sink in at first, being slightly sedated at the time. And even when the haze was gone, I sort of, didn't really think much about it and you know it was just pretty much oh well this is me now. I was in hospital in total around nine months all up. There was a lot of fevers and sickness around that time. So many infections that Mike's organs, particularly his kidneys, suffered damage. At one point his kidneys shut down and he had to have dialysis. After a while, my kidneys had picked up and started working again. They were never quite 100%, but they were well enough that I could leave hospital. Granddad was, you know, he, you know, felt bad about it for the rest of his life. Um, but, I mean, it didn't change the relationship. We were still very close afterwards. I never dwelled on losing my leg, um, 
just got on with it and lived the life I could with what I had. Mike was fitted with a prosthetic leg, but because there was no joint to attach it to, he had no control over it. He ditched it and has used crutches ever since. They first started telling me there was problems with my kidney in my last year of high school, I think it was. I started going and having checkups, and they said, you know, your kidney is deteriorating, but at this point, there's nothing to worry about because it's coming down quite slowly. You know, I was like, I'm young, I'm, you know, invincible <laughs> sort of thing. You know, you, you still think these things even though you've been proven that you're not. Um, and I didn't think anything of it. Around the age of 23, another earth-shattering event happened in Mike's life, although this time in a good way. His girlfriend gave birth to a son. They called him Jaden. I think that's when I really grew up. It, it made me grow up having someone else you have to look after that counts on you, 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 you take that responsibility up, you know. When we separated, you know, um, I was able to look after him by myself. I was always very involved, Dad, from day one. It was when Jaden was six that the bottom fell out of Michael's world again. One day they said, it's happened, you need to have a transplant. And pretty much, you know, the, the call went out to the family as Michael needs a transplant. And my uncle was the first one tested and he was a match. So well, I was very grateful. I was scared before the operation because there's always the possibility that they will connect the kidney and it's not going to work. And I'm stuffed pretty much. When I woke up in recovery and they said, you know, everything's going fine, your kidney is working, I was very, very grateful and, and relieved. My uncle, um, he likes his beer, and he said to me, do you know the sacrifice I'm going through to give you this kidney? You know, I have to drink 1% alcohol for the next six months. <laughs> I bought him some low alcohol beer for him. <laughs> After that, life went back to normal. Um, I came back home and sort of completely forgot about the fact that I had a kidney transplant and just continued on with my life. Continuing on with his life meant a while later enrolling for a diploma in visual arts and design at the Eastern Institute of Technology in Napier. Michael had always had a bent for art, painting in particular. There was a few of us that all sort of become friends and we all sat along the same line and, you know, we would chat and, and create at the same time. One of Michael's friends at Tech was a woman called Pagan, full name Pagan Moon. And as you might guess, it's not the name she was born with, but it's the name she's answered to for most of her adult life. It's kind of started off as a nickname. And then it just kind of stuck, so I've just sort of gone with it. My friends, yeah, decided that that was going to be mine because my philosophy on life, basically, bit of a hippie. <laughs> and also because of her religion. I'm a Wicca. Wicca, also known as pagan witchcraft, 
is not about evil sorcery and bubbling cauldrons. Not at all. It is in fact a positive movement that celebrates nature and works with the seasons and the energies we're made up of and everything is made of. And it's for the benefit of everyone. You don't do anything that is negative because we believe that everything that we put out into the universe comes back to us threefold. So if you put anything out negative, it's going to come back and kick your ass. So yeah, I think it ties in really nicely with the way that we need to live with the earth instead of taking everything and being greedy to try and have that balance. From day one, Pagan and I became friends. Um, I walked into class, I was wearing a Marilyn Manson t-shirt and Pagan was just like, oh, I love Marilyn Manson. Oh, it's his t-shirt, eh? He had a Marilyn Manson t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, and that sort of struck up a conversation about music. Then we just started hanging out at lunchtime together and chatting and stuff. Yeah, she was very friendly. Um, you know, we, we, we talked about our children a lot. There was a 10-year age gap between them. Mike was in his mid-30s and Pagan was a single mum in her mid-40s. She had four kids, three sons and a daughter. The youngest by far was her little girl Grace, who had just started school. Just over a year after they met, when Mike's son Jaden was 10, he got the worst news imaginable. Once your kidneys start failing, you, you start retaining the fluid and that's when they sort of tell you to not drink anymore. Um, I was getting quite bad edema in my legs where my ankle and my calf were nearly the same size. And it was a lot of disbelief when they told me that my kidney was failing again. I was over the threshold where they thought, you know, everything would be fine. And becoming sick again was totally out of the blue. I basically said to the doctor, are you sure you have the right results? Because, you know, I've had a kidney transplant and everything should be great. And they're like, no, it's, it's going downhill. I did take it very hard because I knew, I thought to myself that it would be harder to get another kidney because, you know, most of my family had already been ruled out from the first kidney. And, you know, I didn't really want to ask friends. I, I tried not to let it show to people, you know. I just went on doing my own thing. Um, any day above ground is a good day. I went to tech and pretty much burst in the class one day and just sort of blurted it out. I need a kidney. This one's failing and Pagan sort of offhand like, oh, yep, you can have mine. And I was like, ha, ha, okay. You know, and didn't really think it would progress more than that. You could actually tell before he actually told us because you could see that sort of the colour of his skin wasn't right and he was starting to get bloated and he'd have dark rings under his eyes. And yeah, he just got sicker and sicker. And I actually thought to myself, he looks like he's dying. He looked that sick. And I said to him that he could have one of mine. And I said, yeah, I just have to run it by my kids first and make sure that they're all okay with it, especially with Grace being so little at the time. She would have been six. I, I did not take her seriously at first, but you know, as time went on, I sort of 
discovered that she was serious. There were 11 people all up that had um, offered to donate a kidney and a lot of them were eliminated very quickly. But the, the two people that were the closest matches were Pagan and my cousin. But on the second lot of matching tests, my cousin did not match up, so she, she had to be dropped off the list, and then it was Pagan. When we were getting tested and it came down to his cousin and I, we were actually giving Mike shit about the fact that he was going to get a girl kidney. <laughs> we were going to change him one organ at a time. <laughs> And it is very weird that Pagan was actually a better match to me than my own mother. <laughs> Pretty much, you know, there was like, you know, 70% chance of not working with mum, but, you know, the 70% chance of actually working with Pagan. Pagan was given the news that she was a perfect match, even before Mike. You know, once Pagan found out, I think she told me in class one day, I'm going to give you a kidney. <laughs> And I was just ecstatic. I said to her, are you sure? And she says, yes. When I thought about offering, I had a feeling, yeah, like that little inner voice. I knew I would end up being the one that was a match. It was really weird. He was a friend, and when you're close to somebody, how can you sit back and just watch them get sicker and die when there's something that you can do about it. No, I had to at least offer and, yeah, see if I could help him. Pagan's three older sons and six-year-old Grace all gave it the thumbs up. Well, the boys were, you know, boys. (laughs) Yeah, they were pretty all right with it. And Grace was really good with it. And my parents, yeah, they were pretty supportive too. I just told mum a bit about him, how sick he was and how I felt that, you know, if I was in that situation, being a single parent with a young child, I would hope somebody would do that for me so that I could see my child grow up. And, yeah, mum could relate to that. There was there was a lot of time that, you know, she could have changed her mind. She would have had a lot of time to think about it and reflect on what she was doing. I was frightened that there was a possibility pulling out, especially because, you know, at that point, Pagan and I had only known each other for a year and a bit. And for someone that known me such a short amount of time to show such generosity um, and selflessness, is, you know, it's becoming rare in our world that people help. And... When someone offers help, you know, your first instinct is to not believe it. I was always asking, are you sure you want to do this? You know, you know, I will fully understand if you want to back out, you know. But she was, once she'd made a decision that she was going to give me the kidney, there was no stopping her. She was giving me that kidney. I had a little bit of a panic attack closer to the operation, worrying about Grace, if anything happened to me. I knew, like, she'd be looked after by her dad really well. It was more the, you know, emotional side of if she lost me, what that would do to her. Yeah, also, Grace got a little bit worried as the time got closer to the operation. She was a little bit worried. She didn't want me to die. 
And I told her I didn't have any plans on doing it. But I said to her that, you know, there's always that risk with any operation. And, yeah, that if I died, that I'd just have to come back and be her guardian angel. I never, yeah, never considered not doing it. There was no way I was going to back out unless something yeah, really huge happened. There was no way I was going to let him down. I knew that he was really, really sick, and I knew that life on dialysis is not wonderful, and that life expectancy on dialysis is not great either. So he really needed a kidney. And you had two. Yeah. <laughs> two big, fat, juicy ones. <laughs> There was a small amount of time when they said that there was a possibility that they could not do the transplant. They thought that there was too much scar tissue because I've had many operations on my abdomen over the years that they would not be able to place the new kidney there. But I pretty much told them, it's like, no, this, this transplant's happening. Whatever obstacle there is, I will get to it because I want a kidney. As well as giving away a vital body part, Pagan was facing another first. She'd never been on an aeroplane in her life. They decided that they would fly me to my pre-ops. I'm never really worried about travelling overseas and that because I think we live in such a beautiful country. I've always been just happy here. Yeah, it's a weird sensation travelling in a plane, eh? It's like you're just sitting there and you don't feel like you're really moving. <laughs> I really like taking off. Then it gets boring <laughs> and then you land. The day of the transplant, I says, you know, if, if you don't want to do this, I would understand. And she's like, no, no, I have to do this. You need this. I only need one kidney. I want to help you. I was quite calm, really. I was surprised how calm I was. I hoped that it would be all right for Mike for the operation, that everything went okay. They wouldn't know until they opened him up whether there was any bad scar tissue that would affect the attachment of the new kidney. So they were going to open me up and then open him up, have a look, before they actually removed the kidney. Before she knew it, Pagan was waking up in post-op. The first thing I asked was whether Mike was okay, and I was told that he was still in surgery. And then I got given a popsicle. <laughs> Unfortunately, with my operation, <laughs> which yeah, I haven't really told anyone before because I don't want to put anyone else off doing this because it's a really great experience to give a gift like this. But um, you're supposed to have a catheter into the site for local anaesthetic, and mine was not put in. Because I was in so much pain and it took me longer to recover, I got transferred to the maternity ward. <laughs> so I was wandering around the corridor, bent over with my big swollen tummy because they blow you full of air to do the operation because it's all keyhole. So I'm like hobbling along, <laughs> bent over, and there's all these dads with, you know, their wives in labour and that looking at you sympathetically <laughs> as if you're in labour. <laughs> I think it was the second or third day after the operation, I went down to Mike's room 
and saw him and yeah just the difference in his color and energy and everything it was so different (laughs) he'd peed like four liters during the night because my kidney was trying to clean him up immediately felt amazing i mean when i was in the hospital they you know they send physiotherapists up and she was you know wanting to get me up and moving and sort of the progress that she thought that it would take me a week to do I was doing in the first day you know my mindset was everything's going to be great I can do this (laughs) I was sort of bouncing around the place like yeah you know hold lease on life and Pagan was sort of you know hobbling around like she had been in an accident and uh you know. <laughs> recovery for her was a lot harder than recovery for me. I got told that I could expect to feel a bit of grief or yeah, loss or something because you do sometimes with losing organs. Yeah, I didn't experience any sadness or anything. I was more the opposite really. I was really, really happy that I'd made such a difference in Mike's life. I was back at tech within six weeks after having the operation. I don't think there's anything I can't do now that I did before I donated the kidney. It hasn't really impacted my life at all. It's hard to explain how it feels to save somebody's life unless you've actually done it. But it is an amazing feeling. And just knowing that you've been able to do that for somebody... Yeah, give Jaden his dad back. It's just really, really rewarding. Better than any gift any money could buy. One thing you hear a lot when people talk about being a live donor is, but what if one of my kids or someone in my immediate family needed a kidney and I can't help them? I never worried about if one of my kids needed a kidney. Because I've got four of them, I thought, well, they've got each other. And I also thought that for me as well. I've got plenty of spares. <laughs> I've got four kids. But also the, the fact that, you know, most of Mike's family were not a match. So the chances of someone in your own family being a match for an organ is not a guarantee. The anniversary of the transplant, every anniversary, I brought up a big thing on my Facebook thinking, Pagan, you know. Um... And it's always just like, you know, it's okay, Mike, you know, you don't have to thank me. And I'm like, I do have to thank you, you know. I don't think our friendship's changed at all with giving him a kidney. That's still pretty much the same. We just sort of catch up when we can and still have the odd coffee morning when we can get everybody together. I don't really think about it because I don't think that he owes me anything. When I see him and I think, oh, there's my other kidney, but I don't really think of it as mine anymore. It's really weird too, because like when we have coffee now, like my kidneys are still synchronized. <laughs> so we always have to go to the bathroom at the same time. <laughs> I wish everyone could be like me and they could just ask someone for a kidney and get given one. I. I don't know if you can tell, but there's tears welling up in my eyes right now. Um, you know, it, it's amazing. Um, I'm very fortunate that, you know, Pagan was there for me. Um, 
I will always be grateful. Um, I mean, I never miss an opportunity to thank her. And she says, you have to stop thanking me. I says, but I'm never not going to be thankful. You've been listening to The Lib. I'm Megan McChesney. Aren't Mike and Pagan amazing? I spoke to Dr Nick Cross, who's the Clinical Director of the National Renal Transplantation Service. He told me that in New Zealand, just 5% of kidney transplant operations are on people receiving a second kidney, and less than 1% are on patients receiving a second organ from a live donor. I think that puts Mike squarely in the category of one in a million, and it's understandable why he feels so grateful to Pagan. If a person in need of a transplant can't find a live donor, they have to wait for an organ from a deceased donor to become available, and it can be a long wait. In New Zealand, the average wait is three years. We don't keep records on how many people die while waiting for a kidney transplant, but in comparable countries like Australia, the figure currently stands at around 8%. Pagan's generosity is entirely humbling. And now for a shout out to some wonderful people who've been supporting the lip. First of all, the amazing Kyle Gest, whose podcast The Laps is now in its fourth year. I've been a huge fan of Kyle's for a long time, and I was really chuffed when he chose one of The Lips' stories to run as his latest episode. Kyle chose our first episode, Murder Under the Mountain, to tell in his own inimitable way. I strongly suspect that most listeners of The Lip will already have discovered The Laps, but for those who haven't, you can check it out on thelaps.org. There's currently 50 pretty amazing episodes to choose from, so if you don't know The Laps yet, you're in for a treat. A special shout out also to Cathy O'Sullivan, who gives The Lips space on New Zealand's premium culture and current affairs website, noted.co.nz, each month. Thanks, Cathy. Your support is very much appreciated. And of course, a gigantic thanks to each and every one of you who has tuned in to listen. There are lots more people to acknowledge for their help and support in making this little indie podcast grow wings, including many of you. I'll be doing more shout-outs next month. So I think that's it from me. I really hope you enjoyed this month's episode. We release an extraordinary true tale every month, and you can find every single episode of The Lip on our website, thelippodcast.kiwi. And of course also on iTunes and Stitcher. See you next month.
between quarters.